Imagine for a moment that you're at the end of a sermon that you've preached and you've got this long line of people waiting to ask you questions after the service is over. And your experience will probably be that only about half of those questions will have anything to do with what you just preached. And the other half will have to do with uh, other issues that are on these people's minds. Maybe it's the type of church where you shake everybody's hand as they leave and you're greeting people. And uh, somebody comes up to you and you only have about 30 seconds or so to answer these questions because of the rapid fire nature in which you're greeting people as you go through this line. And somebody asks you, Pastor, how do we know that these 66 books make up the Word of God? How do we know that this is the Word of God? How do we know that this is the Bible? The question could come in a myriad of different forms, but I'm pretty sure, and I don't have the gift of prophecy, but I'm pretty sure that you will need to answer that question for someone somewhere in your ministry at some point in the future. So if you only had a few minutes, or maybe even less than that, only a few seconds to answer that question, how would you answer it? If I was asked that question, here's how I would answer it, and this is going to give you kind of the big picture of where I'm going in this lecture. Um, I think, you know, I don't think the best way to answer it is just to cop out and say, you know, I've got some good books on that, and if you come by the office sometime this week, I'll, I'll load you up with reading. Um, I think the, the best way to answer that, I think we can answer it in less than 30 seconds. I think we can answer it really in just a sentence or two. That the reason that we believe that these 66 books constitute the Word of God is because... Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament and Jesus Christ authorized the New Testament. So if I was to answer the question of canonicity in just one sentence, that would be it. That these 66 books comprise the canon of Scripture because Jesus Christ affirmed the canonicity of the 39 books of the Old Testament and he authorized his apostles to bring additional revelation to the church, and those apostolic writings are what comprise the 27 books of the New Testament. This brings it back to an issue of authority, and that the authority for embracing and affirming the canon of Scripture rests with the Son of God, rests with the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. In that way, then, it is the Word of God incarnate, who affirms and authorizes for us the word of God that is written and recorded in the scriptures. Let's go through then a little bit more detail on that. I have to talk a little bit longer because we have more time in the class period, so my 30-second answer won't suffice for an entire lecture, but I think that is a helpful way to think about it, and I think it I think it uh, properly places the focus on the authority of God rather than placing the focus on all of the details of history or on who affirmed this or who affirmed that. I think in the minds of our people, we need to take them back ultimately to the fact that this is God's word. So why is this, why do we affirm this as the canon of scripture? 
because we understand it to be the revealed word of God himself, and he is the one, it is his authority, which um, makes it authoritative for us. All right, some preliminary observations then. By definition, the written word of God consists of that which God revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, of course, is a very familiar verse with regard to canonicity and inspiration, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own origination, I think is the better way to translate that word. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so as Norm Geisler and William Nix explain, inspiration determines canonicity. So this is canonical because God inspired it. In the Old Testament, God's word was revealed through the prophets. In the New Testament, God's word is revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says then, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So canonicity then in the Old Testament comes from God's inspired word through the prophets and in the New Testament from God's inspired word through his son Jesus Christ and then also through Christ's appointed representatives, the apostles. The scriptures then are the written word of God and Jesus Christ is the incarnate word of God as John 1, 1 and 1.18 make clear. Now, as the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ affirmed the Jewish canon of the Old Testament, and it's important for us to state that he affirmed the canon of Scripture as it was acknowledged and understood in his own day. That canon, in the first century, the uh, Jewish canon of the Scriptures corresponds to the 39 books that comprise the Protestant Old Testament. That canon did not include the apocryphal books. So Christ never affirmed the apocryphal books. So why don't we regard the apocryphal books as part of the canon? Because they do not come with the authority of God incarnate. So... <clears throat> Throughout his ministry, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament in its entirety, including its historical reliability, prophetic accuracy, sufficiency, unity, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority. And Charles Ryrie says, Our Lord used historical incidents in the Old Testament in a manner that evinced his total confidence in their factual historicity. Obviously, our Lord felt he had a reliable Bible, historically true, with every word trustworthy. And uh, every part of the scripture, the law, the writings, and the prophets, Jesus regarded as being the true word of God. Now, secondly, not only did Christ affirm the Old Testament as being inspired and canonical, but he also authorized his apostles to give additional revelation from him through the Holy Spirit to the church. And so in the upper room in John 14, 15, and 16, we have some very important passages where Christ expresses the fact that after he is gone, after he has ascended, 
that through the Holy Spirit, he will reveal additional truth to his apostles. His apostles then are the authorized representatives of Christ in bringing truth to the church. So John 14 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That last statement is especially important with regard to the canonicity and inspiration of the Gospels in particular, that the Holy Spirit brought a supernatural remembrance to the writers of the Gospels as they recorded the things that Jesus said and did. John 16, 12 to 15, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, the apostles, into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So there Christ promises specifically to his apostles that through them he will reveal additional truth to the church. And that brings us back to our thesis here that we accept the canonicity of the New Testament because it comes from those who were authorized by Christ. The authoritative testimony, then, of the incarnate word gives us the primary reason to affirm both the canonicity of the Old Testament and the canonicity of those books that bear the mark of apostolic authority. So the prophets of the Old Testament affirmed by Christ, the apostles of the New Testament authorized by Christ. As Christians, then, we affirm the inspiration of the 39 books of the Old Testament because Jesus Christ affirmed them. We affirm the inspiration of the 27 books of the New Testament because Jesus Christ promised that he would reveal further truth to his apostles. So Paul Helm says it this way, How do we get to the 66 books from the slender base that has been established? The short answer to this is that we get to it through the authority of Christ. It's because he endorses the Old Testament and makes provision for the new that both old and new have this authority. All right. <clears throat> what if someone accuses us of circular reasoning? You believe in the incarnate word of God because of the testimony of the written word of God and you believe in the written word of God because of the testimony of the incarnate word of God. Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, here we get into then presuppositional apologetics, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about presuppositionalism in this class, but ultimately it rests with the issue of authority. Granted, this is a presuppositional argument that requires faith, and ultimately every worldview gets boiled down to arguments that require faith, and that might be accused of of circular reasoning. The question then is what authority is your faith ultimately based on? 
Our faith, though, is a reasonable faith, and it is more reasonable than any other worldview. Thus, we have good reasons from both the perspective of internal consistency and external verifiability to affirm that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that the Jesus of Scripture is the Jesus of history. Having said that, it is the Holy Spirit who ultimately makes the truth of Christianity and of Jesus Christ certain in the hearts of believers. He gives us absolute confidence both in God's Word and God's Son. To those outside the Christian faith, write Josh McDowell and John Stewart, Christianity can be shown to rest on strong evidence and have a high degree of probability for its truth claims. But when a person becomes a Christian, the assurance or certainty becomes a reality. Christianity from a morally certain standpoint becomes as undeniable as one's own existence. So there are very good historical and textual critical reasons for affirming the authenticity of everything that is in this book. But ultimately, the reason we believe that this is the Word of God is because the Holy Spirit has quickened our dead hearts and enlightened our blind eyes to see it for what it truly is. And the authority for it rests ultimately on the word of God himself. There is no higher authority to which we can appeal. Now, I'll let you get into some of the specifics of all this when you get into your uh, apologetics and evangelism class on the presuppositionalism side of things. And on the textual critical side of things, when you get into both Old Testament introduction and New Testament introduction, you'll see why some of these things become important. But big picture, when you're standing there on a Sunday afternoon and this high school student is looking at you going, why do I believe that this is the word of God? I think the best way to boil it down is to bring it back to the person of Jesus Christ. Based on his authority, these 66 books constitute inspired scripture and therefore constitute the canon. All right, let's get into few more specifics here. Insofar then as we have believed in Jesus Christ and submitted ourselves to his lordship, we must likewise view his authority as absolute. There is no higher authority than his when it comes to establishing our confidence in the biblical canon. Some initial conclusions summarizing everything we've said. Number one, Jesus Christ affirmed the Jewish canon of the Old Testament as scripture, therefore we must do the same. And I would add to this, by the way, that Jesus Christ affirmed a literal creation account, so we need to do the same. And when we, if we deny a literal creation account, it really is an issue of not submitting to the Lordship of Christ, ultimately. It's not an issue of, you know, genre discussions in Genesis 1 to 3. That's a side note. Number two, Jesus Christ also established the principle of apostolic authority when he promised to give further revelation through the Spirit to the church. Number three, apostolic authorship then becomes the primary principle for affirming the books of the New Testament as canonical. It's like, why do we make such a big deal about whether or not an apostle was involved in the production of this book? It's because the apostles are the ones who were specifically authorized by Christ to reveal truth to the church or to, um, to bring truth that was revealed to them to the church. And so apostolic authority becomes critical because ultimately it's a reflection of Christ's authority. Number four, because additional revelation was only promised to the apostles, the canon was closed when the apostolic age ended. This, by the way, is why it's so incredibly problematic. This is another side note. 
so incredibly problematic for some sections of the charismatic movement to suggest that there are still apostles in the church today. Because once you bring back apostles, you bring back the um, opportunity for there to be an added revelation to the scriptures. And once you start messing with the close of the canon, you put yourself outside of Orthodox Christianity. And at that point, the charismatic movement can move you from a level two problem into a level one problem. So this whole new apostolic reformation that um, uh, C. Peter Wagner and some of the other third wave groups are involved in, that's, it's very problematic. Um, so I know that there's some more conservative charismatic groups that say, well, we're not talking about capital A apostles, we're talking about lowercase a apostles, but I just think the whole thing becomes muddled and confused. The apostolic era ended, and when it ended, the canon was closed. Period. And if you make your period an ellipsis and suddenly say, but apostles returned later, then you've made the close of the canon no longer certain. That, by the way, is the main motivation for Wayne Grudem, even though he is charismatic, in arguing against apostles still being in the church today because he understands if you have apostles in the church today, your canon is no longer closed. All right, number five, and this is really important. The church did not establish the canon. All right, you will get Catholic apologists who will repeat the claim that the church gave us the canon. The church gave us the canon. The church decided, the church determined, the church authorized the canon. That is not true at all. The church recognized the canon, and that recognition was based not on what church leaders wanted it to be. It was based on apostolic authority. Did this book come from the pen of an apostle? If it did, it's canonical. If it didn't, it's not. It's that simple. Now, the pen of an apostle or someone under the apostle's supervision. We'll get into the specifics of these different books. Yep, Danny. How would they answer Hebrews? Yeah, we'll get into it. Okay. Hebrews. You don't think Paul wrote Hebrews? <laughs> All right, so let's get into some additional considerations. Well, just to reiterate that point, the church recognized and affirmed the canon based on whether or not a book was written under the authority of an apostle. So either an apostle or someone under their direct supervision. So, so you're pointing out that it's important for us to be cautious in how we speak. So when someone out there says, we're small a apostles, we shouldn't even be going near that type of language. It creates confusion. I don't think it's helpful. Uh, I recognize that in the New Testament there are times when the Greek word uh, for apostle is used in the broad sense of meaning someone who was sent. An, an ambassador, a sent one, and that word is even applied sometimes to people who we would not regard as one of the apostles. So I recognize that there is that distinction even in the New Testament itself. Uh, but I don't think it's a helpful term to apply to positions in the church today for two reasons. Number one, it causes incredible confusion. If you start calling somebody an apostle, whether or not it's capitalized or lowercase, people automatically assume that you are putting yourself on the same level as you know, Peter and James and John. 
That's scary stuff. And secondly, um, Paul is very clear. The New Testament is very clear as to what the offices are in the church after the time of the apostles. We have the office of pastor or bishop or elder, those three terms used synonymously in the New Testament, and we have the office of deacon. There is no office of apostle outside of the New Testament church. When we look at the pastoral epistles for what's supposed to happen after Paul and the other apostles are gone. So I don't think it's helpful to try and um, continue an office that Paul himself did not instruct Timothy or Titus to continue in the churches that they were planting. Now, I gave you in your notes uh, a whole addendum on why, five different reasons why the apostolic age ended with, um, with Paul being the last of the apostles and, of course, with the apostle John being the last surviving member of that apostolic group. And if you want to go back and review that at some point, you can. But there are three specific biblical criteria for what qualifies someone as an apostle, and no one alive today can meet that criteria. And one of those criteria is that you see the resurrected Christ, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was the last of all to experience that. So there are no apostles in the church today, no matter what title or label some in certain groups want to give themselves. So they can give themselves a self-promotion, but it's not recognized in God's eyes. All right, additional considerations. Is that too harsh? I don't think so. Additional considerations. In addition to the 11 disciples, the New Testament indicates that James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul were also apostles. And, uh, and Matthias, of course, as well in, in Acts chapter 1. Outside of that group, I don't think that there's anyone else that qualifies as being an apostle in the New Testament. I know that there's that statement in Romans about a couple people who were, um, uh, what's, what was the word? They were considered, they were esteemed in the eyes of the apostles or something like that. I forget exactly what it was. Or esteemed among the apostles. I think the right way to understand that is that they had a good reputation in the eyes of true apostolic leaders, not that they themselves were apostles. Oh, I have it right here. Huh. In order to be considered an apostle, one had to meet the following three criteria. Uh, how about that? Um, it's also in that earlier uh, set of notes. An apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. An apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. And an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and his message with miraculous signs. And there is no one alive today who can claim any of those three things. Well, who can truly claim any of those three things? There's a lot of people alive who claim those three things, but it's not true. Based on these qualifications alone, many continuationists agree that there are no apostles in the church today. So Wayne Grudem notes... It seems that no apostles were appointed after Paul. And certainly, since no one today can meet the qualification of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, and not just in some sort of a vision, there are no apostles today. And that comes out of Grudem's systematic theology. There have been no apostles since the first century of church history. The church fathers who came immediately after the apostles saw the apostles as a, as a distinct group in history. 
They called themselves presbyters, they called themselves bishops, they called themselves elders, they called themselves deacons, but no one called themselves an apostle. At least not until the modern charismatic movement. And Ephesians 2.20 indicates that the apostles were given for the foundation age of the church. So very, very important that apostolic authority is what our understanding of the close of the canon is built on. And that authority does not rest in the apostles themselves. It is a delegated authority that rests ultimately in Jesus Christ. All right, so taking the New Testament book by book. The Gospels of Matthew and John were both written by apostles. The Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of the apostle Peter, written under Peter's care and as written down by Mark. So it, too, is an apostolic witness. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts investigated eyewitness accounts, which would have included apostolic sources, and Paul wrote under the apostolic oversight and authority of the Apostle Paul. And Paul even affirms part of Luke's writings as being part of the Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. So a, a clear and direct apostolic connection. Pauline epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. Paul himself claims that his teachings are the Word of God, and the Apostle Peter confirms this assessment in 2 Peter 3.15. The authorship of Hebrews. It is unknown, making it difficult to apply the test of apostolic authorship. However, the early church clearly believed the epistle to be apostolic, and a number of Christian leaders attributed the letter to the authorship of Paul. Now, we can make good arguments back and forth for whether Hebrews was written by Paul. In either case, I think it is pretty unarguable that someone very close to the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews because it shares so much of his thought in the way that the truth is presented in the book of Hebrews. So I think we can say with a high degree of confidence that Hebrews was written under the umbrella of Pauline authority, even if it's not necessarily directly penned by him. When, apostol yeah, when apostolic authorship is in question, we can then consider other criteria for canonicity, and I have some of those listed below. The general epistles of James, Peter, and John were written by apostles. The epistle of Jude, written by the half-brother of Jesus, and the full brother of James uh, was written under the apostolic authority and oversight of his brother James. So Jude was not an apostle, but, and that's not the apostle Jude. Uh, we're talking about Jude, the brother of Jesus. Jude operated under the apostolic authority of his brother James. And then the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. So for every book of the New Testament, with possible exception of Hebrews, though I think a strong case can be made for um, apostolic involvement and influence, we can demonstrate clear apostolic authorship and or authorization. Thus, we submit to these books because they were given to us by Christ's authorized representatives, and in submitting to them, we are submitting to Christ himself. Yep, Jim. When did the, the problem of apostolic succession happen? Uh, because I, I think 
that uh, it's like the charismatic uh, version of the apostolic uh, succession? Yeah. Um, apostolic succession is an anachronistic idea. Anachronistic meaning something that um, was taken from a later time and then used to reinterpret history. So it's used to reinterpret what really happened. It forces a modern idea onto an ancient context. So uh, apostolic succession relates specifically to the idea that the Pope is the direct spiritual successor of the Apostle Peter. We're actually going to talk about that on Thursday. So maybe I'll save our full discussion of it until Thursday because we're going to talk about Leo and the elevation of the bishop's um, position there in the city of Rome. So we will get to a more full discussion of it. But in essence, as Rome became more prominent and influential, and the bishop, uh, the bishopric of Rome became a more elevated seat of spiritual power, they needed an explanation for an, an authorization and a justification for why they possessed the power that they possessed. And they found that justification in the fact that Peter died in Rome, so therefore there had to have been some sort of line of succession. Now, historically, we can't prove a line of succession. There is a Roman Catholic tradition that supposedly traces it back, but the historical evidence is, is pretty scant. And I'll go into a whole list of reasons why papal succession is a, is a myth when we talk about it on Thursday. So, the reality is that Peter appointed a lot of people in his life, not just, um, not just people in Rome. And we don't even have clear historical connections that Peter appointed the, you know, Linus, who's considered the next one in line there. Linus and Cletus, before we get to Clement. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all an anachronistic attempt to justify the position, uh, theological position, that the current bishop of Rome possesses similar, if not equal, power and authority to the apostles themselves. Which leads the Roman Catholic Church into a huge mess because they don't have a closed canon. Because when the bishop of Rome speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking with apostolic authority. So yeah, get out your Bibles and write it down because this is direct revelation from God. I'm speaking, I'm speaking foolishly. Um, you guys all understand I'm being sarcastic. I'm, I'm uh, simply uh, expressing the way that Roman Catholics think. So the Bible is not, there is no closed canon in the Roman Catholic system. In reality. They highlight the apostolic succession because they want to open and they want to add more. Oh, well, they, yeah, they emphasize two factors. They emphasize not only apostolic succession, which in essence they claim that the current pope is an apostle. That's, that's what they're claiming. And that every pope throughout history has also been an apostle. And when you start to look at some of the incredibly um, barbaric and immoral practices of especially the medieval popes, you have to question this whole idea of that guy was an apostle. Um, 
But beyond that, they also, they also try and introduce the idea of a verbal or oral apostolic tradition that somehow was passed down in addition to what is written. And uh, they make the claim that a lot of their extra biblical traditions then were passed down through this oral tradition that they assert to have preserved. And there's major, major issues with that as well. Um, for starters, the Greek Orthodox Church, which claims the same tradition, doesn't hold to a lot of the same nuances that supposedly come out of that oral tradition. And, um, and also, it misses the fact that throughout the writings of the Church Fathers' early church history, Christians understood that the oral tradition of the apostles is what was then written down in the scriptures. So there is no extra biblical oral tradition. There is simply what the apostles preached and then what was written down. Well, in order for any... Look, <clears throat> I don't consider the Roman Catholic Church to be a cult. I consider the Roman Catholic Church to be an apostate church. The difference between an apostate church and a cult is that an apostate church had the truth at one time, but has allowed the traditions of men to cloud that truth. Old Testament Judaism is an example of an apostate religion. By the time we get to the, to the life of Christ, those who had the truth, the religious leaders of the Jews, had become apostate because they had allowed the traditions of men to cloud the truth of God's word. Roman Catholicism has done the same thing. The traditions of men have clouded the truth of the gospel. And so it's a long process, but we're here now where Roman Catholicism has become an apostate religious group. The traditions of men have clouded all three of those things that we've talked about. A wrong view of God. Yes, they affirm the Trinity, but they also allow you to pray to saints and consider Mary a co-redemptrix with Christ. I mean, this is a problem in their view of who God is. And a wrong view of salvation, it's salvation by works. And a wrong view of the scriptures, because the, there is no closed canon, and it's the teachings of the church that really trump the teaching of scripture. But, but the cult groups are very, very similar. The difference is that a cult has never had the truth. So Mormonism was never true. Um, the Jehovah's Witness movement was never true. That would be the distinction between an apostate movement and a cult group. And yet they, they fall short of biblical truth on those same three categories. A wrong view of the Savior, a wrong view of the Scriptures, and a wrong view of salvation. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, with cult movements, there's always going to be a prophet or some self-proclaimed authority who says, I have revelation from God, and this is what it is. And that new revelation from God, of course, completely goes against and undermines the true revelation of God as found in the Scriptures. All right, let's come down a little bit farther here. All right, uh, Dr. Pettigrew, who used to teach here at TMS and now teaches at Shepherd's Seminary on the East Coast, uh, in his systematic theology class, which I took when I was a student here, he outlined five principles for canonicity, the recognition of canonicity. His first principle is what he called the credential principle, and that's the principle that we've really been talking about this morning, the principle of authority. Uh, who was it that produced this book of Scripture, 
And are they someone who was an authorized representative of Christ, someone who was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Then we have what we call the competency principle, that only God is adequate to witness to himself. Therefore, we should ultimately allow the scripture to inform us as to how to recognize what is scripture and what isn't. And so we look for those clues in scripture itself, and uh, we've seen some of those already. Things like Peter affirming the writings of Paul, and Paul affirming the gospel of Luke, and Christ authorizing his apostles. Then the chronological principle, that God limited canonicity to the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New. And so outside of the apostolic era, you cannot have any additional scripture being written for the New Testament. Then what he calls the consistency principle, God cannot contradict himself. Therefore, if a book is truly from God, it must harmonize with what was previously revealed from God. And so Acts 17.11, the Bereans, when they heard the claims of the gospel, they went to the scriptures to see if these things could be true. And Paul calls them, or Luke calls them noble for doing that. And then the conviction principle. The Holy Spirit illumines the hearts of his people to recognize the authenticity of his word. This might be referred to as the corporate internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And certainly as the Holy Spirit as Jesus said in John 10, my sheep know my voice, they hear my voice, and they follow me. The Holy Spirit affirms in the hearts of believers that which truly comes from God. Now, uh, what about Old Testament Apocrypha? Uh, we won't go into all the details of this except to say that the Jews of Jesus' day did not believe the Old Testament Apocrypha to be part of the canon. So when Jesus affirms the Bible of his day, he affirms the Bible of the law, the writings, and the prophets, not the Apocrypha. It really is that simple. And for early Christians, they also did not believe the Apocrypha was part of the, the Bible. Uh, when Jerome, in you know, 400 years, well actually he finished in, yeah, he finished in 405, with the Vulgate, you know, 400 years later, when Jerome finishes the Vulgate, he recognizes that the Apocrypha is not part of the canon. And we talked about that a little bit already, why he included it in, the, in his translation of the Vulgate, but uh, that's where the problem ultimately began. So Jesus affirmed the understanding of the Old Testament canon as being the law, the writings, and the prophets throughout his teaching, and um, never argued with the Jewish religious leaders as to their understanding of what constituted scripture. He argued with them a lot about their interpretation of the scripture, but not as to the books that comprised the scriptures. Um, all right, we don't have time to go through all of this, um, but here in the notes I've given you quite a bit of information about why we would not regard the Apocrypha as being part of the canon. But if you're looking for the simple answer, I think it's because Jesus didn't regard it as part of the canon. There you go. Case closed. What else are we going to argue about? <clears throat> 
All right, the New Testament canon. Um, because these books come from apostles, they are authoritative and canonical from the moment they are written, that the Holy Spirit inspired their writings. So it's the writings that are inspired, and they were inspired from the moment they were written. They were canonical from the moment they were written, though it did take the church some time to recognize that which was canonical and that which wasn't. And part of that was in response to error. When Marcion came along and tried to cut out huge sections of his Bible, people were saying, you can't do that. You can't disregard apostolic teaching. And it led them to begin to list the books that they knew to be of apostolic origin. And uh, this took place over several periods of time. I do have a section here on why some of the books were questioned. I think the important thing to recognize with each of these books is that the question people were asking is, did this book come from an apostolic source? And again, they are affirming the principle. So the church is not deciding what's in and what's out. The church is asking the question, which of these books come from apostolic sources? If it comes from an apostolic source, it is authoritative, and we must submit to it. We shouldn't see them discussing these things as uh, calling into question the canon. We should be thankful that Christians took time to carefully consider which books are truly apostolic and which books might not be because they had such a high regard for apostolic teaching that they wanted to make sure before they affirmed something that they could ha assert absolute and full confidence that this came from an apostolic source. So the fact that the church was careful in what it recognized should not be seen as a negative thing, but rather as a positive, since conscientious Christians were careful because they, they knew they needed to submit to that which was apostolic, but they didn't want to submit to something that wasn't. And um, ultimately, it was the understanding, based on historical factors, based on testimony of early Christian leaders, based on the contents of the books themselves, it was a full confidence in the apostolic origin of these books that includes them in the recognition of the canon by the church. But it all comes back to that delegated authority of Christ himself. One last question. Oh, just um, hearing you talk about the, the early church fathers and their desire to find out this is really came from the apostle. It's very consistent also with those early councils. Um, those councils are meeting and affirming what the apostles absolutely and it also goes to further affirm that there were no apostles after that apostolic era otherwise they would be looking at other people's writings as well to consider that should be a part of the canon absolutely it all comes back to the authority and it, it comes back to the lordship of christ if christ is the lord of his church then his word is the authority in the church and his authorized representatives then must be listened to and obeyed because to submit to them is to submit to Christ. Which brings us you know, full circle to sola scriptura. And when we get to the Reformation, that is going to be the issue. If Christ is the Lord of his church, then his word is the authority. If the Pope is the Lord of the church, then the magisterium of the Catholic church is the authority. 
and hence we have the Reformation. Because Protestants said, no, I'm going to submit to apostolic authority, not to papal authority.